guys can get, go ahead and have a seat. Do me a favor and track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Isaiah chapter 52. We'll put verses up on the screen, so uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can track along with us that way. But I want to take you into the servant song that Isaiah presents to us in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. Uh, Melody read a portion of it a few minutes ago, so I just simply want to pray and then we'll get right to work. So if you would, please bow with me. Lord, we ask that you would please speak to us. On this Good Friday, Lord, we want to take time to reflect on the significance of the crucifixion and all that that means. So, Lord, would you, by your Spirit, speak through your word for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, here the song has four different aspects to it. I'm going to share them with you up front so you can track with me along the way. There's a mission... There's a man, there's his ministry, and there's his majesty. And so we'll take them one at a time. The mission shows up in verses 13 to 15. It's the introduction to the song. It's the first stanza of the song, and it's an introduction and an overview. It tells us everything that is going to be covered over the course of the song, but it's telling us something about God's mission. What is God up to in this world? Let me put a fine point on it. Here's what God is doing According to this song and according to all of Scripture, here's what he's doing. He is reconciling the world to himself through the, through the execution of his son. He's reconciling the world to himself through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Now, we don't get all of those terms here in our song, but all of the themes of that are introduced to us. The people who would have been contemporaries to Isaiah, they would not have categories for this. If they're reading their Bibles, they're thinking about there's a Messiah, a Savior, a King, a glorious one who's going to come and and free us from any oppression and reestablish us and make us strong and make us noteworthy. But Isaiah keeps on bringing forward this servant, and he's a suffering servant. And they could think, okay, there's a suffering servant, but that cannot be the same one as the exalted Messiah. These are incompatible But as we come to find out, the suffering servant is the exalted Messiah. The mission is introduced to us in verses 13 to 15. Look at verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Amen. We can get on board with that. He's going to be elevated and he's going to be exalted and all will take note of him. This sounds like the Messiah. This sounds like the glorious one. This sounds like the victor. This is the wisdom of God. He will act wisely, but the wisdom of God confounds the wisdom of man. So, what he does is unexpected. He suffers. Verse 14, when we look at him, we don't find what we would expect if he's the high and exalted one. It says in verse 14, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of a human being, and his form was marred beyond human likeness. He's the exalted one, but then you look at him, and what does he do? He gets disfigured. He gets marred. He gets beaten beyond recognition, and people recoil then at him. So how is it that this exalted one is going to take on this form of a humiliated one? We used to play capture the flag in the fields out here um, when I was much younger, 
but we would play capture the flag, and here's how the game works. You've got a neutral zone, and you've got two teams, and they've got their own territories, and you hide your flag, and then you go across the neutral zone, and you sneakily enter into enemy uh, occupied territory and you search for their flag and to win you have to find it and bring it back but if you get caught in their territory you go to capture the flag prison or whatever that is and so I remember playing in the middle of the night with my brothers and all our friends and we were running around in the in the woods out back and it was dark and I was on uh, in the enemy territory looking for the flag and somebody spots me so I start running through the trees and zigzagging through all the trees back there and looking over my shoulder to see how close they were and how, you know, if they were gaining on me. But I still wanted to figure out where's this flag at? Where are the other people at? I'm going to figure this thing out. So I'm looking over my shoulder and I'm running as fast as I can. And before I know it, I'm on the ground and I'm rolling around in agony. I'm in so much pain. It feels like a Charlie horse, like where something hits you and your muscle tightens up. It feels like the worst Charlie horse I've ever had in my life, and I have three brothers, so I know what they feel like. But I had this Charlie horse, and I'm rolling around on the ground, and then I'm beginning to realize something's wrong. And so everyone starts to kind of get around me, and it's the middle of the night, so the, the moonlight's coming through the canopy of the trees, but we can't really see anything. And I pull my pant leg up, and I'm wondering, you know, what, what on earth uh, did we do here? What, what did I do here? And I'm really good at getting hurt, so I knew the drill, but I, we pulled my pant leg up, and one of the kids had a Bic lighter, and so he lights the lighter, and all of a sudden the light, you know, you can see faces now, you can see what was a shadowy silhouette becomes a person, you can see all this stuff, and I've got my pant leg pulled up as high as I can, and you can see my leg, and here's what happens. A collective gasp, <gasps> and they see, and the, he drops the lighter. He, everyone's so freaked out because my leg, and I don't, I'm not trying to gross anyone out, but I was injured pretty severely. I had to get 30 stitches. And that, that collective gasp of, <gasps> and just like, I, ugh, this, I don't want to look at that. That's what Isaiah is describing here. This, the mission of God in, involves a servant who is so disfigured beyond that of any human likeness, marred beyond recognition, he, he, this is what this servant is going to do. There's something surprising about that then. Why, why on earth does this servant have to suffer like that? But then we're told by his doing so, he's accomplishing something. We're getting these categories put together now of this high and exalted and mighty one who's also willing to suffer and experience tremendous pain and hardship and difficulty. And as we understand it, reading back through Scripture and through human history, we understand this is Isaiah talking about our Savior, Jesus Christ. We understand that those categories of the high and exalted one are totally compatible with the suffering servant. So what did he do then? What was the outcome of his mission? Well, verse 15 tells us, it says, so he will sprinkle many nations. And we go, oh, okay. I don't know what that means, but cool. Uh, does that mean it's like a light rain? Like what's going on here? But sprinkling in the Old Testament it's used over and over and over again. They use water, they use oil, they use blood, but it's a priestly thing that happens. A priest will take water, oil, blood, according to what God tells them to do, and they will sprinkle it on people or on items, and they will do that to consecrate that item, to cleanse that item, and to prepare that item to be in the presence of a holy God. Here's the ministry of Jesus Christ by his death, 
He is sprinkling many nations. He is doing something that will result in people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation coming together before the throne. He's preparing people to be in the presence of God. He's consecrating them for that. It is by his death and his resurrection that we have access to the, to the Father himself. The ministry of Jesus Christ is the ministry of missions, of getting people from every place to come to know God in a saving way, and he is preparing them for that. Now, as a result of that, everyone will acknowledge how awesome he truly is. Look at verse 15 at the end. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they've not heard, they will understand. What is obscure to them in that moment will become very clear when they recognize Jesus is Lord of all. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The Apostle Paul, he picks up this idea later on in Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He describes what this is. He says, this ministry of the crucifixion, it's the wisdom of God, but it confounds human wisdom. The wisdom of God, it, it's far better than any human wisdom, but here's the problem. To some, this wisdom of God in the crucifixion, it will be a stumbling block. And for others, it will be foolishness. But to those who believe, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ is the wisdom and the power of God. The ministry, the mission of Jesus is that ministry of going to the cross and dying for people who are undeserving so they might be made ready for the presence of a holy God. So the mission in verses 13 to 15. Then we have the man in verses 1 to 3 of chapter 53. And the man, there's this interesting paradox. He's both incredibly weak and at the same time incredibly strong. He's weak and ordinary. He grew up before them in an ordinary fashion. In verse 2 it says, he grew up before them like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. It, it, when, he, when Jesus of Nazareth returned to Nazareth, what did they say about him? They said, oh, that's Joseph's boy. That's the carpenter's son. No way he's Messiah. We know this guy. We saw this guy. We, we interacted with this guy. He's just a regular dude. There's an ordinariness about him, and, and there's something about him that in many regards is un, unimpressive. Look at the end of verse 2. He had no beauty, or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. When people looked at him, they saw him as he was. He was unimpressive. If you looked at his resume, you would go, well, okay, he, he's not doing all these incredible things. He's just, he's just ordinary. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was human and he was seemingly unimpressive. Therefore, he was rejected. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. That's an accounting term. It's saying you look at him, and you evaluate him, and from, human, from a human perspective, you look at his ministry, you look at that small band of followers, you look at the, the, the things that he did, and you go, that amounts to nothing. How could that be God's plan for the world? How could that be God's way of salvation? But many people will see him in his ordinariness and in his weakness, and they will turn from him. They will reject and despise him. Many of us are not humble enough to bow before the crucified 
Savior. But in reality, he is weak, but at the same time, he is incredibly strong. Look back at verse 1 of 53. The question is put out there, who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has heard and understood what it is that we're talking about here? This is the arm of God. This is the arm of the Lord. It's a metaphor in Scripture to talk about God's ability to do stuff in human history. God's arm, his, his activity of doing something in the world in which we live. And, and Isaiah is saying, man, this is the message. This man who is ordinary and, and lowly is also at the same time the king of glory. He is the strength of the Lord. So who will believe that message? And that's the question we have to wrestle with tonight. Do we see Jesus for who he really is? Fully human and in some ways unimpressive and at the same exact time, fully God. The strength of the Lord, the, Lord, the arm of the Lord, the power of God in our world. Will you believe on this man? Will you hear this message and believe what he has come to do? So the man in verses 1 to 3, the ministry in verses 4 to 9, here's his ministry. It's made very plain for us. He's got a ministry here, and it's a ministry where he's willing to, because of his love, he's willing to substitute himself in the place of other people who don't deserve it. He's willing to pay the penalty for other people and suffer on account of that, even to the point of death. And that's what he's going to do. Let's look at it. He's substituting himself through his suffering. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Goes on to say, we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. It's saying, obviously, that's kind of that word surely there. It's saying, obviously, there's something going on here. He, he didn't suffer because he was a bad dude. He suffered because of me. Surely he took on my problems. He was stricken and afflicted and punished by God. He was pierced and crushed. Look at verse 5. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's telling us the reality of the gospel that he was willing to do something for us over and over and over again. It says, it's our problem. It's on account of us. It's because of our transgressions, our iniquities. What we, what we did, the punishment that we deserve was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's telling us what his ministry is. He's going to substitute himself for you and I and all of us need it. The biggest problem that we have in life is not that we're not managing our lives very well. The biggest problem that we have in life is a sin problem. Look at verse 6. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of us in here, Corey Williams, those who are watching online, everyone at the tree farm, our biggest problem is that we reject God as God. We all, like sheep, go astray. We all have own, our own ideas for what we think the world should be like and how it should revolve around us. In the words of R.C. Sproul, all of us commit cosmic treason. There is a God. He made everything, including you and I. We, we, we owe him everything. And then we look at him and we say, no, 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 you're not God, I am. It's cosmic treason. We all deal with that problem, that inclination of the human heart to dismiss God. Even if we believe in him, we treat him as though he were irrelevant. And all of us have gone astray, but God in love and mercy 
put the iniquity of us all on him. This is what theologians call the great exchange. He takes what we deserve. He takes the penalty and the punishment of sin. He's pierced and he's crushed for us. And he gives us what he deserves. He gives us the reward of his rightness with God. He was perfectly obedient. He was, perfect. he was in perfect relationship with his father, and he gives that to us. It's an exchange. He takes the penalty, and we get the reward. He, he, he pays for our sins, and he gifts us with his righteousness. This is the heart of the gospel, and it really does address the biggest question that we might wrestle with. How is it that a holy God can love me? How is it that a holy and awesome God who cannot stand sin can deal with a sinner like me? How can he be both holy and loving? How can we reconcile these things? How can God be both a holy and awesome God and at the same time deal with somebody like me? And here's the answer, Jesus Christ. The way that these things are reconciled is the cross of Jesus Christ. In fact, Romans 3 wrestles with that question and answers it for us. It tells us that the way that God can be both just and the justifier is because Jesus was willing to be our sacrifice. It is on account of Jesus standing in our place that he pays the penalty, and then he gifts us with his righteousness, so God remains both just and the justifier of the inexcusable like me. We all struggle with sin, and the cross of Jesus Christ is the only hope we have. So God tells us about this ministry here that Jesus is willing to suffer in our place, and not just suffer, he's willing to die for you and I. There's an acceptance of his death in verses 7 to 9. He silently goes to the cross. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, I don't fully get this because we've got animals here, and when the vets come and we have to take the animal and get it to the vet to be able to get a shot or its hoof cleaned out or whatever, the animals always protest, right? They're like, no, I'm good. I don't want to do this. And they make a bunch of noise and they make a big fuss. But here we're told that maybe a sheep does things a little different, that a sheep silently goes to the slaughter, that it, that it voluntarily just marches alongside of its shepherd and does what it's supposed to do. And it tells us this is exactly what Jesus did. Like a sheep is silent before its shearer, Jesus went to the cross. You only hear him interact with the Father one time in the garden as he's sweating drops of blood. He's in total agony over what he knows will transpire in the coming hours. And he says, if there's any other way, take, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will be done. And from that moment forward, when he hears the answer of that prayer, there's a resoluteness to go to the cross. And he's arrested, and when the soldiers come, he's like, do what you've come for. And he quietly marches with them, and when he's put on trial before them, and they say, defend yourself, open your mouth and say, your defense here, and maybe you could be liberated. And he doesn't say anything. He quietly goes to the cross and dies in our place. He was taken away in death, verse 8, by oppression and judgment, he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. He died. 
He was cut off. He was taken away. He was buried. Verse 9, he was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. His body was taken off of the cross there, and it was placed in a garden tomb. It was the, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man. But while he was crucified, he was crucified with two criminals on his right and on his left. And so the prophecy of Isaiah comes absolutely true, him being assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. This is the irony, though. He didn't deserve any of it. Look at the end of verse 9. He had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. He was innocent through and through. He died this horrific death, but he was totally innocent, totally right with God. He died for the undeserving. He did not deserve to die. I did. He stood in our place, and he paid the penalty, and by so doing, he offers salvation to us. That is his ministry. It's a ministry of substitution out of love where he's willing to suffer and even die for us. It's the heart of the gospel. So finally, the majesty in verses 10 to 12, he didn't stay dead. He did not remain in the grave. That was not the end of his career. He rose victorious over sin, death, and the grave. So look at verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he is completing the Father's will. This is not an addendum to the plan. This is not God saying, okay, it's all screwed up now, so here's plan B. This is the plan. This is the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth were laid. This is God's plan to reconcile the broken world to himself through his son. So Jesus is fulfilling the will of the Father by being made an offering for sin. And he's vindicated. He didn't stay dead. Look at verse 10. He will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. He doesn't remain in the tomb. He comes forth again. Verse 11, after he suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Though he died, yet he lives. And Isaiah is telling this to us before it even happens. Jesus is vindicated through his resurrection. It's God saying, what he did accomplished my purposes. And you can trust him and you can believe him. And my wrath is satisfied because I poured it out to exhaustion on him. So you can believe in him for salvation and have that incredible confidence because he suffered in your place and yet he lives forevermore. So here's the incredible invitation as we wrap up this servant song, the invitation is not just that he died for you and I, but he died for many. This is incredible. Look at verses 11 and 12. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. What Jesus did on the cross through his death, burial, and then through his resurrection is an invitation for all who are far off to come to him in faith. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. He will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. It's telling us that the majesty of Jesus Christ is wed to his willingness to sacrifice and die and rise again. We worship him because of what he was willing to do for sinners like us. It reads like this at the very end, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the, for the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's telling us that the ministry of Jesus Christ is 
is a majestic reality because he's willing to die for any who are far off from him. Barry Webb, commentator, he wrote a little commentary on Isaiah. And I love how he concludes this song, and he puts it like this. He says, the message of this fourth servant song is for transgressors everywhere. It's for anybody. So if you can hear my voice, if you're watching online, this is for you. The message of this servant song is for transgressors like me who are anywhere. And he says, all they have to do is admit that that is what they are. That's it. And I would add to that, and that Jesus Christ is what they most need. This is an invitation for anybody to acknowledge their need because of their sin for a Savior. To say that Jesus Christ is the one who is willing to volunteer himself in our place and by faith in him, he died, but he rose again. And anyone who believes in him shall not perish, but will have everlasting life. Who has believed this message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? May you believe in Jesus Christ tonight. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would help each and every one of us to reflect on the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ. He was willing to die for us, and and the benefits of that are tremendous. They bring us peace. His punishment brings us peace. And who doesn't need that tonight? We need peace with God. We need inner peace. We need peace with each other. Thank you, Lord, for dying and in our place so that we could have peace. He was crushed and afflicted and wounded. And by that, we are healed and restored. Lord, all of us need that restorative work right now. Would you help us by faith apply the reality of the gospel to our broken-heartedness, to the hurts and pains, to the, the areas where we need healing, both emotionally and physically, would you please apply your pierced hands to our brokenness? Help each and every one of us to believe on Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who is willing to die for us so that we might live forevermore. Amen. Amen.